Welcome to the Perennial Podcast, where we reflect on wisdom from modern life, from ancient philosophy, and spiritual traditions. Each episode is based on timeless principles and practices designed to help you live your highest good. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome back to the Perennial Podcast. Today, I'm sharing a conversation with my friend Simon Drew, a familiar voice to some. He came on In Search of Wisdom, episode number 42. Simon is a poet, musician, photographer, and philosophical mentor. He's the host of the Walled Garden podcast and author of the new book, The Poet and the Sage. In the conversation, we primarily discuss the wisdom of Seneca. You can learn more about Simon at thewalledgarden.com. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Simon Drew. I know you've been a big fan of, of Seneca. I wasn't aware until recently that you've done a number of episodes for your Patreon community specifically on Seneca. So I guess I want to ask to start with, why why Seneca? Well, Seneca was, uh, I guess he was my introduction into Stoicism. Um, and what I'm, what I'm trying to do with the Seneca series is actually not necessarily to come at it from a particularly Stoic perspective and say, you know, why was Seneca a Stoic? And let's look at Stoicism through Seneca. Because I actually think that he was he was quite an original thinker, although many of his ideas, if not all of them, do align well with the Stoic philosophy. I think that his thinking was very original and, and uh, interesting. And I feel such a kinship with Seneca, particularly because he was also a very artistic type. I mean, he, he was a playwright as well. Um, you know, but also a very ambitious person. And so, he... And, and, and a person who had a very complicated life. Very complicated. Uh, many problems that he had to solve throughout his life, um, including some of the, the harshest moral problems that anybody might have to deal with. And you can see that in his writings, that he's not he's not a simple thinker. He does really, he's really wrestling with what it would mean to live a good life and what it would mean to die an honorable death as well. Um, and so, you know, as an artist, I feel a kinship with him. As somebody who's interested in the moral questions, I feel a kinship with him. Um, and I'm just trying to go piece by piece through his epistles and hopefully all the way through his writings, but there's a lot. Um, and I'll let you know that I've I'm a, I've done about 116 episodes so far, but I'm about 30 letters in. Which means that by the end of it, um, by the end of the epistle section, there's probably going to be about 500 episodes of that show. So it's this wow. is this is like a three four year project for me. Um, and, and I guess let me say one more thing on this because another reason why I chose to dive so deep into into Seneca's writings is he has this great piece of advice where he says uh, you should choose somebody. Choose a teacher whose genius is unquestionable, and you should spend as much time with their thinking as possible. He believed that, you know, having all of these books behind me and picking and choosing and all that is kind of the sign of a fussy stomach. He thinks if you really want to learn how to think, pick pick a really great teacher and go really deep so that you, not, not so that you start to think like them, as it like think the same things that they do or come to the same conclusions that they do, but so that you learn how a great thinker thinks, right? And then you can start to use those practices to then go and think for yourself. And we know that he wasn't just saying, you know, go and think like another great thinker, because he also says, you know, hey, you you come to me and you say, Zeno said this and Zeno said that. Well, when are you going to have something to say? You know, <laughs> when are you going to give us something that that the generations can hold of value. So, you know, he was not an ideologue. He was not somebody who taught us just to go and follow one person and become an ideologue to that that ideology. He really wanted you to learn how to think well. And um, I think that we see that in his epistles. And I'm every letter, I'm just blown away by how much you can get if you pause and really dive into one verse or two verses. And so, it's it's been fun. 
Well, I love it. I'm excited to to chat about Seneca for sure. I'm a bit of the opposite of of coming to him last, I guess, if you if you will, um, if you call kind of Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca the the big three or the most popular. Um, and I've really been surprised by the amount of content that there that exists from Seneca. It is quite a a massive amount, as you explained there, to to get through. Yeah. Um, I was thinking I would love to see some sort of best of Seneca type of type of book come out for the for the person that maybe isn't isn't willing like yourself to kind of go through each and every one all the way. Um, mm-hmm. But before we get too far into Seneca, I did want to chat about the the walled garden and the new book, The Poet and the Sage. Could you give us an update? Yeah, man. Well, the Walled Garden, I guess I can say this because, uh, you know, Sharon and Kai and myself, we are having a meeting today and releasing an episode today, hopefully, about our vision for 2021. The Walled Garden is really, it's a collaboration between uh, Sharon LaBelle, who is a just a beautiful uh, author from the United States. She's, I would say that she is the wisest person I have ever met. Um, Mm. And Kai Whiting, the other person who I'm working with, will not have any problem with me saying that because he he probably feels somewhat the same. She is she is so wonderful and one of the kindest, nicest people I've ever met as well. And she's been much of a an artistic mentor for me, a poetic mentor for me. Really, she knows how to deal with highly creative people, and so she's kind of nurtured me under her wing and. And then Kai Whiting as well, you know, Kai is somebody, he's a British philosopher and professor and author and, um, you know, he is somebody who, since meeting him on day one, having him on my podcast, he's been somebody who recognizes when something something good is going on and he wants to be a part of it and he wants to support it and his whole, menta- you know, methodology is... If I can help you to make basic, you know, be successful, then uh, heck, when you're successful, you can help me to make be successful, and we can all <laughs> be in this stew together, you know. And he's he's uh, such a wise individual. He's he's his name actually. I found out that his name Kai actually means warrior, at least in one ancient uh, 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 um, language, and. That makes so much sense because Kai is a real fighter. When he believes in something, man, he is going to like, he's like a dog at the bone. He's going to push at it, push at it, push at it and really get that message out there. And one thing that Sharon, Kai and myself, we all agree on is that we feel as though stoicism in the modern world has lost a lot of its deep uh, theological value, lost a lot of its traditional value that bring people into a... Um, you, you might say into a relationship with the cosmos that, well, perhaps we can talk about this today because Seneca certainly had that sort of sense in his writings. But we're very interested, and this is our whole vision for 2021, is 2022. We really want to help people not to simply uh, be students of Stoicism uh, or, you know, classical traditions in general, because we are, we are, coming at this from very different angles, like, you know, Kai is a hardcore academic. That's not who I am. I'm a hardcore, you know, artist, poet. I'm <laughs> I'm not the academic type, right? Uh, Sharon is, you know, she can hold her own in the academic fields as well as in the, the poetic, artistic fields. But we all come at this from a different angle. But we really, in 2022, we want to help people to have the experience that our ancestors had a feeling that interconnectedness with nature and the logos and, and things that are divine. Um, and I, I'm going to quickly read you something from Emerson. I'm probably going to read you a couple of quotes uh, from him today, but um, actually I'm not because I don't have that quote right in front of me. But he has this great passage right in the front, in the introduction of his essays on nature. And he basically talks about how he was living in a time where everybody was either a critic of the past or they were a historian of the past or they were, you know, they were looking to the past as if it was some artifact of these strange individuals who had this great experience of enlightenment or closeness with nature. And he said, 
why should not we also have that experience? He said, why shouldn't we have a religion of revelation to us and not of tradition to theirs? Why shouldn't we have a poetry and philosophy of insight and not merely of tradition? And when I started looking around, Joshua, like, I started to realize that when people talk about Stoicism today, so much of the way that they talk about Stoicism is not necessarily from the standpoint of an experiencer of the goods which they provide us through their writings, right? But of a historian of philosophy. So, and I was doing that for a long time as well. You know, you do an episode, you know, well, Seneca said this, and, and Epictetus said that, and Marcus Aurelius, he says this, what a wise thing to say. But who's actually coming from this from, from the standpoint of, I've had the experience of personal enlightenment or what they might have called eudaimonia. And I know that this stuff is real. We can really have this experience of interconnectedness and, 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 and you know, perhaps the oneness of all wisdom that, that Heraclitus talked about. And so, we want to bring people in on that journey because we all feel as though we have had at least a taste of that experience and we're not satisfied with being historians of Stoicism or the classical wisdom traditions or or any tradition, really, we, you know, I'm studying Christianity and, and studying divinity at, at university. I don't want to just be there as a student or a historian. If there's an experience to be had, I want to freaking have it, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's why I'm there. So, that's that's what we're really trying to do with with the walled garden is take people on an experience, not not just the history of these things. Well, that is is beautiful. And I have a question for you around that, something I've been thinking about. I, I remember on one of the episodes, there was a conversation and you quoted, I think it was an Alan Watts quote about this uh, prickly, gooey, you know, thing of, uh, of, of Kai being a bit more prickly. And if you look at the three of you, as you've kind of explained, very maybe different perspectives different, you know, skill sets coming at it from a, from a different vantage point, I guess, maybe if you will. But uh, how important is that? And how is that? How does that work and kind of fit together on a from a practical standpoint, if you could give a little insight, maybe? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, for those who are listening at home, you know, haven't heard that, that Alan Watts quotes, one of my favorite insights that he gives. He basically says that you can break the world down into prickles and goo. You know, you've got the academics, the intellectuals, you know, these are the these are the hard prickly types, you know, they like their arguments to be tight, you know, they like to know exactly what they're talking about. Um, and and so they're always going to look at the gooey people, the artists, the poets, the musicians who have these kinds of experiences of of whimsical enlightenment, and they're going to be like, "Nah, give me the hard facts. Like that's what I want to know." And they're going to think you guys are crazy, but the artists are going to think, "Well, you know, you academics, you're crazy." You know, I, I I think it's insane when I ask an academic who's spent their entire life researching these ancient texts when I ask them. Have you had the experience of enlightenment that these people you're studying have had? And they, their answer is, well, I'm just the academic, you know. What? You know, that makes no sense to me. But, but, but Kai Whiting, you know, he can really hold his own in an academic debate around principles of traditional stoicism. I cannot. It's not where I come from because I'm not, I'm not necessarily on that adventure. Um and, and, you know, Sharon and I, we come from more of the gooey type where, you know, but the other thing that Alan Watts said, he said, but the world's not actually prickles and goos, it's actually gooey prickles and prickly goos. So, what I'm trying to create in the, in the world garden is a mix of prickly goos and gooey prickles. Like, I want us to get together the academics and the, and the artists and, and the gooey people, you know, to come together and say, like, Let's let's all aim at something together, you know, and, and Kai, you can help us out in the intellectual academic front. I want you to be teaching me, like, how what are the hard facts about these things? But, you know, Sharon, I want you to be there helping me to, you know, be the best poet that I can be, to be the best musician I can be, so that you get both of those worlds. And I think that's that's very important because we, we don't... We no longer have to live in that world where you've got the academics and then you've got the artists in the same way that, you know, when I went to university to study music, 
you had the classical department and then you had the jazz department. Mm. I actually think that that's a very strange way to kind of break it up. And if we actually looked at personality types, we would see that perhaps we can all come together and agree that it's not just that we're trying to study something different. It's what you're actually dealing with in the university in music is you're dealing with two different personality types. One is much more perhaps open in their thinking in terms of their personality, right? Openness as the trait of, of the personality. They want to explore, they want to improvise, they want to be creative all the time. But the other person in the classical department, they're very happy with given a sheet of music, you play this exactly note for note, how it should be played, and you are conducted by the conductor and we want you to sit in line, you know? But Man, if you can get those two disciplines together, you start to realize it's not that we're trying to study something different here. What what we are is we're coming up from a different standpoint of creativity and your personality type and all these things. So, I'm trying to say, well, there doesn't need to be that kind of dichotomy. Um, Kai is very interested in having the experience and being an academic. Sharon and I, we are both keen on having this experience and understanding why, you know, it, it's happening. So... That's kind of what we're doing, and yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's um yeah Alan Watts he's he's a wise person, and that just blew me away, and that was some of the inspiration behind getting these two different types of people together. I I love the and I think something that has influenced me the most in my life, and there's lots of many people that say different things, like definitely Watts is, is one of them. I recently started a, a, a book of his that I'm not super familiar with, but Two Hands of God, that is kind of all about that. But Richard Rohr, an author I came to kind of early on and in, in the path, started this uh, Center for Action and Contemplation, has a super popular daily meditation that comes out, but it, it's always about this both and, and one of his books is like, everything belongs, is what I was thinking of when you were describing that Watts quote. It's like, it, both of it, both of those things belong, and they're needed, you know, and they have value, and I, I love that um, you've assembled that team you know, and, and it's exciting to kind of see and, and look from a distance what you guys are up to. Um, it's fun. But man. maybe we it's, could... It's a fun adventure. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could transition um, and, and follow that thread that you were talking about of interconnectedness. Because it seems to be something that maybe like a wonky word a little bit or oneness, interconnectedness, yeah. super long word, but it, it comes up in so many traditions maybe not the exact word but you know the idea of that and um i had a a guest on on in search of wisdom a book i'm i'm a big fan of uh wiser kind of comes at wisdom from the scientific roots and one of one of um the pillars of wisdom that uh he identified is this idea of of religion or not necessarily from a specific tradition or anything, but just this idea of being part of of something bigger, this idea of being connected. How do you see that come through in, in Seneca, if we can maybe tie that idea to, to Seneca? Hmm. Yeah, well, Seneca, as were many of the, the Stoics, you know, Stoicism was influenced by, by Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic, pre uh, <laughs> what is that, Socrates and erotica, Socratic, okay, um, so anyway, yeah, he was a pre-Socratic philosopher, mystic, poet, you know, Heraclitus, this very interesting character, he influenced Stoicism at large, and he also influenced Seneca's writings, we know that because Seneca quotes him a few times. Now, I'm going to call upon him for this word oneness or interconnectedness, because he actually... He was the one who gave us this principle, and he was 500 years before Christ, right? So, that's how influential this guy was. He came up with that term, the Logos. Now, the same term that John later called Christ, right? You know, Christ was the Word or the Logos is what it's translated from. Now, that that term Logos, that Logos, <laughs> among meaning 
pretty much everything else. It's it's such a difficult term to to describe or or define. But one of the things that it certainly means is it's that principle of interconnectedness. Everything is 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 hyper connected in this in this universe. You know, it's the binding force that brings everything together. Um, and and it is also the word, you know, according to the Christians, certainly. But one of the things that Heraclitus said is the oneness of all wisdom may be known or not by the name of God, right? And his the the writings that we do have from Heraclitus are just little snippets of his poetry, his wisdom poetry. You know, so you get the you get the sense that he also said something like, what do you say? Um, men dig tons of dirt to find an ounce of gold, right? You get the sense that what Heraclitus was doing, he's exploring his mind, his consciousness. He's exploring the outer world as well, if there is an outer world. And he's having this experience of digging for gold in his mind in terms of those little nuggets of wisdom that can bring you into a relationship with a deeper kind of kind of wisdom. And that's... You know, when he says something like the oneness of all wisdom may be known or not by the name of God, the academic's going to look at that and think, uh, oh, interesting phrase, interesting philosophical phrase. Or, you know, but but I look at that and I think, holy crap, what an enlightened, <laughs> what an enlightened person. Like, like that's a deep, deep, deep idea. And, and we have to ask ourselves, do we actually take that with the seriousness with which it, it deserves to be taken? And so Seneca is being influenced by this great thinker who has this this deep, deep wisdom. I believe it was Plato, I, and you can't quote me on this because I can't remember where I heard it. I believe that Plato said of Heraclitus's writings that they were so deep that you could drown in it. You know, like that they, they, they would have been better if you could actually get to the bottom, but but you can't, right? Um, and so Seneca, you ask me about interconnectedness. I want to give my own answer to that, but I'm really drawn to doing the opposite to what I said before and being a historian of philosophy. And I want to read you something from Seneca. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's quite a long passage. It's about a page, but I'm going to read it because I think it's powerful. It's really important. So, this is the passage that I started my soul searching with Seneca series by reading. I read this in the in the second episode, I believe, to set the tone for what I was trying to figure out about Seneca, because he he seems to be a quite an enlightened figure in that he through his writings shows us a real connection with the cosmos or with with the world. You know, the Stoics would talk about do not consider yourself as a, a citizen of this nation, but as a citizen of the cosmos. So he said for how little have we lost when the two finest things of all will accompany us wherever we go, universal nature and our individual virtue. Believe me, this was the intention of whoever formed the universe, whether all-powerful God or incorporeal reason creating mighty works, or divine spirit penetrating all things from greatest to smallest with even pressure, or fate and the unchanging sequence of causation. This, I say, was the intention, that only the most worthless of our possessions should come into the power of another. Whatever is best for human being lies outside of human control. It can neither be given nor taken away. The world you see, nature's greatest and most glorious creation, and the human mind which gazes and wonders at it, and is the most splendid part of it, these are our own everlasting possessions and will remain with us as long as we ourselves remain. So, eager and upright, let us hasten with bold steps wherever circumstances take us and let us journey throughout any countries whatever. There can be no place of exile within the world since nothing within the world is alien to men. From whatever point on the earth's surface you look up to heaven, the same distance lies between the realms of gods and men. Accordingly, provided my eyes are not withdrawn from that spectacle, of which they never tire, provided I may look upon the sun and the moon and gaze at the other planets, provided I may trace their risings and settings, and their periods and causes of their travelling faster or slower, 
Provided I may behold all the stars that shine at night, some fixed, others not travelling far, but circling within the same area, some suddenly shooting forth and others dazzling the eye with scattered fire, as if they are falling or gliding past a long trail of blazing light. Provided I can commune with these, and so far as humans may, associate with the divine, and provided I can keep my mind always directed upwards, striving for a vision of kindred things, what does it matter what ground I stand on? So it's like, wow, you know, Seneca, he's standing there on the island of Corsica. He's been exiled from his country at the time of writing this, you know. So when he says... There is no exile to the man who realizes that, you know, there's nothing uncommon to man. Everything is, we can understand these things. We can find an interconnectedness with these things. We can commune with what is divine. We can look up at the stars and be inspired. And and notice at the start, he doesn't say, hey, here's God and I'm communing with God. He's like, whether it's God or universal nature, or whether it's this or whether it's that, I don't quite know what to name it, but man, I feel connected with it. That's powerful stuff, you know? And so, when you talk about interconnectedness, you know, we have the ability as human beings, I believe, to feel that connection with the, with this game that we're all playing, this strange play of life, this strange, you know, experience of consciousness, we can, you know, we can feel it kind of an enlargement of the soul where we start to realize that perhaps it's not just like I'm in this body and then everything else is outside of me, but perhaps everything is far more connected than, than we might at first have realized. And so, I think that's that's the experience that we're trying to have here. And is there anything better to aim at? You know, um, I'm going to say one more quick thing and then I'm going <laughs> to stop rambling here. But I give people this really interesting exercise to think about um, that helps them to see just how interconnected we are with humanity and, and with the world around us. And I say, think about how many processes have to happen for you to be able to get up go to the store and get a carton of eggs, right? And bring that back and cook your breakfast. If you're fortunate enough to be in a country where you, A, have the money to be able to do that and B, have the store that's willing to sell you the eggs and they're not all rotten. You know, you've got to have the the egg farmer. You've got to have the chickens. You've got to have the people who grow the chickens and give them to the egg farmer. You've got to, you've got to have the person who provides the feed to the chickens, the person who drives the eggs from the chicken farm to the, uh, to the, to the store. You've got to have the person who creates the crates for the, for the eggs. You've got to have the person who stocks them. You've got to have the store owner. You've got to have, it's, it's like, there's like thousands of processes that go into you just being able to get a carton of eggs from the store. That's interconnectedness. That's when you start to look at your fellow man and realize, man, I need you (laughs) and I need you to do what you do well and I need to do what I do well. And you realize that this whole game of life is you are just so hyper connected with everything that that is. And that's such a powerful, beautiful thing to realize. Um, So, anyway, I'm going to throw it back over to you because I've been rambling for a long time and I can for much longer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I I love it. Um, that's what I was thinking as you were reading. That is just connected. What a what a deep connection. What has always just really got me thinking. I'm super curious about. Um, I probably came to a bit of um, like saints and mystics and things like that before getting deep into stoicism. And when I read Marcus Aurelius and, you know, some of Seneca, it's like, oh, wow, it, it, you know, it's reading so similar. You read something like that and it is, I mean, it reads just like Meister Eckhart, St. John of the Cross, so many of these kind of saints of, of the past. Or even on the East, if you think of, um, um, you know, Buddhism and different monks and things like that. But I wonder these saints or, you know, Eastern traditions, a big part of it is, you know, massive amounts of hours being, 
you know, in some sort of stillness practice, some sort of whether it's meditation, uh, you know, that type of stuff. It, I wonder, like, how did these Stoics come to this kind of same perspective of the world, very, very similar? You know, do you think that there was some sort of contemplative practice, or is that maybe not necessarily needed to come to a deep realization of that connection? I don't know what my question well, is, but that's yeah, what no, I'm no, curious about. Yeah, no, no, I get your question. About. I certainly do. And, and I think the, the interesting thing is that, you know, Seneca kind of embodies that spirit of prickles and goos together, right? Because he was that artistic type, right? Yeah. And he did have the experience. He was really after the experience. He wanted that. But he was also highly trained. You know, he was also a, re a rhetorician and uh, an orator and, um, you know, advisor to the emperor Nero, which was a crazy position. But, you know, we can get into that later, perhaps. But, you know, uh, Seneca had a very uh, firm education in the Stoic philosophy, right? Same with Marcus Aurelius, same with Epictetus. You know, these people, in the same way that Eckhart would have had a very firm understanding of the Christian doctrine, right? So, yeah. I don't want to throw away the possibility that what's happening here is that they are extremely academically astute and, and well-educated, right? And and then there's a there comes a point, though, there comes a point where I believe Seneca says this, Marcus Aurelius definitely says this, and I think that Epictetus says this as well, throw away your books, because once you have that kind of like, once you get to that kind of point where you, you perhaps achieve that oneness of all wisdom that that perhaps uh, Heraclitus was talking about, what good is another book? In in, in the same way that um, Emerson, he he talks about how, you know, once a person finally reaches over that point where they understand what the ancients were talking about when they said enlightenment or when they said, you know, eudaimonia was the term that they would have used in in the Stoics or when they talk about this oneness or this interconnectedness, you know, when, when, when the person finally reaches that brilliance of understanding where they're coming from, you don't need to remember their maxims. You don't need to remember what they said because you're actually living the experience. And so, uh, mm. You know, I think that it's 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 interesting, right? Because I'm coming to this being a student of Stoicism. You went to the Mystics first, but now that I'm studying divinity, I'm going back to the Mystics, right? And and I really want to know what they're talking about because I really align with their way of exploring these ideas. But I was listening to Eckhart the other day, and he called Seneca the heathen philosopher. And according to Eckhart, that's that's perfectly reasonable because I get the sense that what the Christians were, the early Christians, there's some speculation that they were actually considering putting Seneca's letters as a part of their canon, right? Mm. We know that some of the early Christian fathers, one of them, somebody starting with T, I can't remember for now, but, but basically referred to Seneca as our Seneca. We know that in Dante's Inferno, uh, is yeah, I believe it's in Dante's Inferno. Yeah, he he actually refers to Seneca in some of the first chapters as somebody who was just outside of you know uh, the. I'm I'm not familiar with this stuff, but I'm familiar that he had Seneca in there. My point being, I get the sense that the Christians kind of felt that Seneca was almost there, you know, in in terms of like their doctrine that he just got so so close, but he was still a heathen. He just didn't catch it, you know. Um, and and so it's interesting to look at you know even the, the fact that Seneca was in and around this time when St Paul was coming to Rome there is some speculation i, I i'm not going to say this is true but there's speculation over whether Seneca actually had conversations with St Paul so you know i think that what we're looking at here is a time of great prosperity in terms of the 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 philosophical and theological awakening of minds right um but I want to quickly touch on Marcus Aurelius as well, because I had a brilliant conversation with, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, my gosh. I wish I could. Oh, brilliant thinker anyway, um, who recently wrote a book. I can't believe that I can't remember his name because it was one of my favorite conversations ever. But people will know it's, it's, it's called The Immortality Key. Now, mm -hmm. basically, the author is, uh, is talking about the psychedelic origins 
of Christianity and Western culture, that people like Plato, people like Socrates, they all went up to Mount Eleusis and had this spiked wine substance that was kind of like a psychedelic drug that, you know, led them into a kind of death and then a rebirth, right? The inscription on the temple was, uh, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. Um, And so, you know, very interesting to note that somebody like Marcus Aurelius also would have perhaps had that experience. He talks about it in the book where Marcus Aurelius was trying to reinstate these temples. So, Marcus was a person of the drugs, you know, and and you see that in his writings as well. You know, you see that in his writings, he's very mystical, very poetic, you know, very strange in a lot of the stuff that he says. Um, But he's exploring the mind, he's exploring consciousness, isn't he? He's exploring uh, the kind of foundations of reality. Brian Murarescu is the person who wrote that book. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there perhaps was a, yeah, meditative practice. I mean, Seneca would say, you know, at the end of your day, or I mean, it was Epictetus actually gave us these three questions to ask at the end of the day, you know, what went well today, what didn't go quite well, and, you know, what can I do to make tomorrow better? The examined life is certainly something that they're engaging in, is trying to ask deeper questions about what it means to be human, what it means to be a good human, Um And so, that's certainly part of their practice. And, you know, and that's the thing, we come back to and. It was, yes, it was an examined life, and it was a great philosophical education, and there was some, for Marcus Aurelius, there were certainly some drugs involved, and, you know, you just have to think there's, there's, and on top of that, they're all living in this period of great theological and philosophical awakening where, you know, everybody is just... There was no religion and society. It was all mixed together. And so, they're all trying to ask these questions. And um, I seem to think that we are currently moving into one of those ages in our modern times as well, where enough people are falling away from religion and falling away from the spiritual path or the enlightened path. And now, a lot of us are having this meaning crisis and we're starting to come back and say, no, 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 there's something better. I want to have that experience. So, what is that and people are coming to philosophy, whether they're coming to, or they're coming to religion, they're coming to people like Jordan Peterson, who do a series on the first few books of Genesis, and it sells out and millions of views. It's like people are interested in this stuff. So, yeah, um, that's that's my answer to your question, even though it's quite roundabout. <laughs> I want to get your thoughts on something. It seems, it seems to me that you can get to this particular realization of deep connection without psychedelics and and things like that. Like maybe there's a path, like one thing that, um, some of these maybe, maybe mystics. I know like, uh, I've heard uh, Richard Rohr kind of talk about, um, you know, the path of great suffering. As you mentioned, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, you know, highly educated, like a real foundation, a real philosophical foundation. And then I, I've, I've been thinking about, you know, probably the last couple of years of uh, Marcus Aurelius. I think he had 13 children and, you know, went through the suffering of, of burying eight of them. I think if I remember correctly, eight of them died. You know, as as someone with a couple of little ones myself, I it's hard for me to think of um, a more difficult, challenging, you know what I mean, probably suffering type of thing that maybe could could break many people. You know, you could get to the point. It's not like you know you experience this suffering and you know you you get to some sort of. Uh, at the end of that, some sort of uh, happy state of a deeper connection and, and greater wisdom. Maybe there's many people that would, uh, it might do the opposite of that. They just, uh, you know, it's unbelievably challenging. It's tough to even think about. I, I think of Seneca as well, maybe these exiles, like who knows in terms of Nero and, you know, all the intricate, I, I imagine some challenging situations as well. But but what do you think about the the suffering piece of it maybe? adding to uh to their wisdom yeah no i i think it's a great point it's 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 
very important when looking at the Stoics to realize that it was in many ways an ascetic practice, you know, uh, where not only would they say, yeah, life is going to throw you many, you know, fate is going to throw you many, many challenges, which you're going to have to deal with, um, but you should you should actively seek to challenge yourself so that you experience what it is that we're trying to show you to experience, which is, you know, why, why Seneca would say, okay, well, you know, perhaps once a month or every so often you should live in the scantiest clothes and, you know, the, uh, eat just, just a little bit of bread and, you know, just a little bit of water, just so that you can see that even amidst the, terrors of life where you might become extremely poor monetarily and you might not have have enough to eat and you might not have you know you might befall be befallen by tragedy you need to know that you can actually deal with that when it comes and and so they were very serious about well i i'd put it like this i spoke to a very interesting person recently just in a private conversation um and uh, it was a strange conversation. He was somebody who has, believes that he had had this experience of, you know, really coming to know what the ancients were talking about and that, that personal enlightenment and really strange fellow, but I like really strange people, right? I really like strange people. And so, you know, one of the things that he said to me was, um, he said, you know, this kind of knowledge, you kind of have to bleed for it, you know? And I said, ooh, yeah, okay. Like, and this is, this is, Actually, you know, we live in a, if, if you're living in Western culture right now, the chances are that, you you know, you're probably in like the top 1% of people around the world in terms of monetary wealth or um, even just access to food and clean water and stuff like that. This is actually the biggest challenge I believe that we have to personal enlightenment is that life can be very easy sometimes. I'm not, and look, we all deal with with our own challenges, whether it's mental health challenges or whether it, it is financial challenges or all of these things. Uh, but at the same time, we need to recognize that, you know, we do live in a time of great prosperity. And sometimes that prosperity can get in the way of us having that necessary bleeding, perhaps, you know, that, that leads us to actually think, okay, we need something better than a nice home, a nice car and all these sorts of things to lead to uh, real satisfaction. Um, and in many ways, that's what I find interesting is that is the kind of conclusion that Christianity came to was like, life is suffering always and forever, you know, in prosperity or in, you know, or in hard times. And you need to find something that's going to carry you through that, you know, and here's a whole bunch of stuff that can carry you through those hard times. Um, you need to you need to have an anchor, perhaps, to something much deeper, much richer in your life. So, um, absolutely, that ascetic practice of Stoicism is right there. Seneca practices it, and he encourages us to do the same. Um, and I would just say that, yeah, like we we always need to keep that on my, on our minds that this prosperity, that the prosperousness of this time, is perhaps something that is. <laughs> Well, it's certainly, we're certainly on the edge. I would say that we might have like a rude awakening from that prosperity in the coming years, you know, because we're certainly, um, it seems like we're driving off the cliff at a horrifying pace. But, um, you know, when those times come, we need to have something to anchor ourselves to and we better hope that we have it before they come, you know. It does seem to be such an important point that you that you raise there, and we could probably talk for another hour on that. But it, it reminds yeah. me of something um, Jordan Peterson said, as as you reference. He talks about the the follow your bliss. You know, it's that follow your blisters. You know, it's like follow that mm. that difficult path, which obviously shows up in so many traditions. But I wanted to maybe. Maybe we can touch on one particular letter, and it can hopefully maybe be a transition to a to a future conversation, and that is on the tranquility of mind. There is something in that that I think resonates with me right now. We're recording this in in the beginning of the year, a time when you're kind of reflecting, maybe thinking about you know that the year ahead. 
But I love this letter because it opens with, uh, you know, this uh, not Seneca, but the actual person that he's uh, communicating with, Serenus, if that's pronounced correctly or not. But uh, he gives this analogy for how he feels. And for for the listeners, he says, I'm neither sick nor well. My condition is not life threatening and brings no real disruption. And he concludes with this analogy. He says, I'm not distressed by the storm, but by the seasickness. So take me from whatever evil this is and come to my aid as a flounder in the sight of land. That really Mm. connects with me of, you know, not, you know, it's not life threatening. Like I'm doing pretty well, but I'm not necessarily at peace you know there's still a bit of churning maybe a bit of turmoil uh how does that connect with you and and maybe if we can briefly chat about that maybe you can kind of wrap wrap it up with any thoughts that you might have yeah man well i i love um how seneca was always an observer of the you know the ocean of his soul perhaps you know like is it calm? Is it wavy? You know, and and he he was so wise when it comes to these things because you know there's another thing that he says. He says, you know, like, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially, um, you may look to me for advice, but I'm not standing here telling you this is how you should live your life. I'm just another sick patient in the same hospital as you, trying to get yeah. well, right? He was always trying to get well and he had a lot that he had to get well over, you know, like he, you know, he, he probably dealt with a lot of uh, stress over, you know, the kind of decisions he had to make in his life or perhaps not had to make, but did make, uh, you know, he was dealing with very uh, complicated moral um, uh, moral con- uh, uh, decisions to make. And I'm interested in that, that that phrase there that you read because in a lot of kind of enlightened people you get this sense that they get to the knowledge right the knowledge is there but that doesn't mean that they don't still feel sadness or grief or stress or angst or all of these things they're still right within us you know they're right there um you know, enlightenment isn't this thing that means the rest of your life is just going to be pure bliss. It's like, no, like so many enlightened individuals from India, like I watch a lot of mystics and they say the same thing. It's like, you know, don't expect that you're just going to become this perfect shining being and you're never going to feel human emotions again. Uh, and I get the sense that that's some something like what Seneca is saying in those passages as the, you know, he, he's... He is progressing. He does see, but nonetheless, he still still feels those feelings. And this is, you know, you wanted my opinion on it. It's like, man, I'm I'm in that kind of I'm I'm in that boat all the way because I'm a person who you know like high emotions. <laughs> like like I, I I have an ability to maintain a calm face, but you know when things aren't going how I want them to go in life, I still. I still feel stressed, but the but the difference between myself now and the, myself five years ago is when I feel those emotions, I'm able to draw upon this wisdom from the past and and bring it into the present and really understand. You know, perhaps what I'm worrying about, perhaps I can relax a little bit because because it's not. It's not something that's within my power, you know, and not not just pushing it aside, not just pushing these feelings aside and saying, oh, it just doesn't matter because, you know, what can I do about it? It's it's about recognizing that, like, pull yourself back into a center almost, into back into that anchor of, of deep wisdom, right? And say, how can I proceed and continue to cure my soul here? How can I aid my soul in in its in its flourishing right now. And that might be mean saying, okay, well, man, I've been focusing on this for the past few days and it's been stressing me out. I need to come back to this center within myself and focus on something different and, you know, uh, uh, pull myself 
into that realm of upper things again, you know? And so, yeah, I think, yeah, it seems to me, it seems to me like that's sort of the world that Seneca is living in where he's, you know, he's on an adventure. Enlightenment isn't this destination. It's, it's the time when you kind of, you know what could be and you're trying to cure your soul, you know, and, and Seneca is a wonderful doctor of the soul. Something you mentioned there, just to maybe we can put a pin in and uh, to be continued, is that idea of emotions definitely not repressing or pushing down, but it seems like Seneca and others kind of dance with them. I mean, they do the opposite. Yeah, that's they a great really, way to put it. Um, which, uh, yeah, I, I love. So I'm looking forward to connecting again but for the listeners out there what's the best way to to connect with you and, and stay in touch with what you're up to simon well look um probably just go to thewalledgarden.com or go to simonjedrew.com um you know if they want to connect with us on facebook just search the walled garden um you know just search simon j e drew or simon drew if you search simon drew you'll get an artist by the same name in uh in england who does these wonderful drawings uh of, of farm animals and includes puns in the drawing so you'll get some great stuff there that's not my work but but you know he's a wonderful <laughs> person as well i want to get him on the show and interview him i'd love simon drew to interview simon drew um nice. but nonetheless yeah just search simon j e drew search the walled garden you'll find it people know where to go awesome well hey thanks so much for taking the time to connect again i really appreciate it no thank you so much joshua yeah this has been so much fun i one thing okay here's i i'm gonna make a cheesy plug though and and let's do it if if people want, if people are interested in kind of this path of the soul, um, as you mentioned earlier, I did just recently write The Poet and the Sage, and that's a book of poetry and prose. And if, if people are interested, I know that it'll be a transform uh, transformational book for them because, you know, that is my path of exploring my soul, exploring the contents of my consciousness. It is a work of philosophy and theology, you know, as well as poetry and prose. It's just the method with which I explore these matters. And so, um, I, I would really encourage people to grab that and you can go to the walledgarden.store uh, to purchase that book as well. So, I'm going to leave it there. And I do as well. Highly recommend it. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh reading it and we had a conversation on in search wisdom about it that people can check out if uh, they want to yeah. learn more as well so thank you so much yeah, thanks joshua thank you for listening i hope you found something useful if you're interested in learning more every monday we share a short reflection with three timeless ideas to help you start your week with wisdom you can subscribe at perennialleader.com until next time, be wise and be well.